Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 96 of Real Blend, a podcast that is ready for Skywalker to rise. The Golden Globe nominations have dropped, and we have plenty of reaction to uh, who is there and who is not there. Uh, We're going to be reviewing a few movies that are opening in theaters this week, including more talk about Jumanji The Next Level. I hope you guys have been enjoying the interviews that we brought back from Cabo San Lucas. Uh, This week, we have an interview that we were able to conduct with... (laughs) Sam Mendes, uh, the director of 1917, which it's, I, I am not uh, able to, you know, uh, talk about the people we have on this show on a regular basis uh, and, and process it, really, because I know you guys all know that the Tarantino is coming, but the fact that uh, we were able to slip Sam Mendes in for a, an amazing film like 1917 uh, before Quentin drops is, is amazing to me. So I, I keep saying us and we and, and and all that. So let's get to official introductions for the guys. I'm going to start this week with my great friend, Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Kevin, how are you, sir? Hey, good to see you guys. Uh, yeah. And, and regarding to Jake's points about uh, Star Wars, I'm, re- I'm re- rewatching them as well with, with my wife. And I watched Last Jedi again last night. And yeah, that did not hold up. For me, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. come on, we, 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 we can get into that, Wait, but there, that movie is problematic. Did you do already one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We've gone, we've been going all over the place with them. Um, but uh, I, oh, there's man. a there are lines in Jedi that I just cannot get over. Like, look, there's one line where Poe goes, it starts with a your mom joke. Do you, do you want me to hop in an X Wing and blow some stuff up? Like, dude, wh- how do you know that people know what this world is? Like, like, like that's the problem with Jedi to me is that it's aware that there's an audience watching it, but we can get into a whole thing on that later. We will. Our resident Star Wars fanatic, uh, Jake Hamilton, who is going to be a, a mess of of uh, nostalgia tears and childhood dreams come uh, come Monday when all three of us, four of us, I'm sorry, Gabe is coming with all us as well us. too, uh, are going to be at the premiere of Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. Uh, Jake is with Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, sir. Yeah, dude. This is this is my end game. You had your end game, yes. uh, a little bit uh, a little bit earlier this year. I think Kevin had his end game by getting three hours with Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> and uh, and this is this is my end game. Oh, it's time. I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready for the ugly cry. Jake, you don't like Jedi either, so don't don't, don't uh, you gotta back no. me up there. No, no, I'm with you. No, 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 I'm I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. Uh, before I get to the DC update, I do want to point out something that that I noticed this morning um, that. Jake, what what would you say? Well, you now say probably Empire, but you would say Road to Perdition is one of your top all time movies forever. Yeah, right? unquestionably. And yeah, this forever. week you got to meet Sam Mendes and and tell him that, right? Essentially. Yes. Yep. Um, yep. Kevin, you say that Terminator Two. You have always said Terminator Two is uh, your favorite movie of all time. Yes. This year you got to interview Linda Hamilton and Arnold Schwarzenegger for that movie, right? That's correct. Uh, I have said that Endgame has surpassed Die Hard as my favorite movie of all time. And earlier this year, I got to interview the Russo brothers. Like, it's it's mind-blowing to me that all three of us were able to have opportunities to speak with the people responsible for yeah. the movies that shaped us, essentially. And uh, I, I wanted to bring it up because it was when you posted your Mendes picture, Jake, that I was like, this year that we have had has been mind blowing to me. Just incredible. Just incredible. Yeah. It's you know, people often ask about the best part of our job and I always say it has nothing to do with like the trips or or um or even so much like the flashy celebrity angle of it as much as it, as it is looking in the face of people who who molded us in a way and just saying thank you, man. I can't tell you how many times whether it was 
John Williams or or Spielberg or or Sam Mendes yesterday, just being able to say thank you. I mean, that's the best part of the job. Yeah. All right, uh, and we're going to kick off next year with something really, really special as well, too, and, and a lot of you guys are going to be part of it. So we've been talking about the fact that for our 100th episode, we're going to do uh, something special in Washington, D.C., and a great number of you guys have been signing up for it, which has been fantastic. We're going to be doing a live recording of episode number 100 for everyone who is able to attend. Uh, we have a reservation space at the AMC Georgetown 14. Uh, this is going to be taking place on Saturday, January 4th. We have the RSVP page that we've been plugging on the show. It's bit.ly forward slash real blend DC. And now we can officially announce that we're going to be doing the 100th episode in front of everybody. Oh, and we have the, the new Facebook community page too, uh, that you can go, uh, go to Facebook, search for real blend. We have a community page that you guys can participate in. There are details for the meetup there and, and the blenders already are taking over that page and, and launching film discussion. So similar to what we do here with this, uh, the weekly poll, something that runs on Fridays and then we bring that conversation to the show. Last week's poll uh, is, is split exactly kind of where I thought it was going to be. Uh, the question was, whose side did you take in Noah Baumbach's film Marriage Story, which is about the uh, separation between two characters, uh, one played by Scarlett Johansson and one played by Adam Driver. Now, the question was a little bit loaded, and we did get flack from some people who said, well, you're not supposed to take a side. You know, like the whole point of the movie is that they're both right, they're both wrong, and choosing a side deflates the purpose. But I think I think watching the movie, when you put yourself into it, you do sort of I think, you know, you just sort of naturally gravitate towards, oh, I think this person was a little bit more right than a little bit more wrong. Uh, I totally understand why people would say that, like, oh, they both had their reasons and they both, you know, disagreed for different things or tried to make it work or didn't try to make it work. I totally get it. But I kind of wanted to see where things fell. Uh, Jakey, where do you think the audience has landed? Did they side with Nicole, Scarlett Johansson's character, or Charlie, uh, Adam Drive's character? I think it was probably close. I would predict somewhere between like, a, and I, I don't know the, what the results are. I really don't. I would say it's probably like a 55-45 split, but I'd say more people would lean more so towards Charlie, if anything, just because I think people like Adam Driver more than they like Scarlett Johansson. And I think that's a part of it. Well, it was exactly that type of split. It was 48-52, essentially. Okay. And they did side with Charlie. Um and again, I know it's difficult to sort of choose a side, but I was kind of putting that out People there. People choose test. sides in relationships all the time. Of That's course, a thing that, that of is course. a thing that happened. Like, like, sure, should like should we do that when watching Marriage Story? Like, probably not. And the movie does a great job of kind of making sure you know that both people at some point messed up somewhere along the road. But to say, oh, you should not do that, then you're denying human nature. People do that all the time. That is a thing that happens. It is, and I think it sort of shows that. Uh, you know, people had a difficult time choosing between uh, which one they were going to go with. And some people, you know, did say in the comments beneath, oh, I, I would have picked this, but I kind of think that they uh, that, that they really did walk that line pretty closely. Kevin. Yeah. Uh, it, it's an interesting thing. So I saw the movie in September. I, I'm just going to take this from a personal angle for a second because I know you're not asking me which side I fall on, but I do want to uh, comment on it because – um, yeah. And again, it's been since September that I've seen the movie. Correct me if I'm wrong. Adam Driver's character cheats on his wife at some point, correct? In the film. He does. Yes. Okay. Um, I, when I look at that movie, I, I do agree that it's may, it may not be a, is an exact split down the middle of who you could choose, which side you're on. But I always sided with Scarlett Johansson's character um, only because I felt like her reasoning was valid i felt like she didn't she wasn't and again this is what i took away from it she wasn't able to do what she wanted to do with her life um and right. it was more about 
the way Driver's character designed their life, and it was really kind of the show that he was running during the movie. I would heavily argue, on my in my opinion, that Scarlett Johansson would be, I'd be on her side personally, only because I see that perspective and I understand what she wanted and what she didn't get from the marriage. Also, her husband cheated on her. Um, and I just find that to be, an, it's an interesting question. And I think there's a, that Laura Dern speech about marriage and God and um, is just incredible. Um, and I think that that moment, there's a lot of things in that film that really just kind of resonated as a married person, not saying that I'm going through similar situations that they are. I just found that Scarlett Johansson was the one that I sided with personally. But Yeah. And I think that's what's going to happen. I think people are going to see things like, for me, cheating is a deal breaker. You know, like if I see that in a relationship, that's uh, there's no coming back from that. You know, I don't think there's any kind of excuse you can point to and be like, oh, well, that's why you did that sort of thing. So sure. personally, you're right. That's going to take me out of that conversation uh, for real when that happens that way. I, and also his defense wasn't great. Wasn't his defense like, I could have done it more, but I didn't? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Never like, I only did never it once. Whenever he said that, I was like, dude, like, <laughs> you're not helping yourself right now, man. I will say this. We're all human beings. Um, both those characters are human beings. People make mistakes. I'm not saying that cheating is something that would needs to end a marriage. I just think that in this situation, if you're looking at both sides, I feel like she was the one who was right for the majority of the argument's sake. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing to think about. I mean, I, I think the cheating thing was part of it. But I think at the end of the day, she was not able to be the person she wanted to be in that marriage. And I think that's why I ultimately 100%. would go with her. Yeah. Well, we're going to circle back around to talk a little bit about Marriage Story when we get to the Golden Globes. But before we get to our talking points, we'd like to throw it to this week's interview. And again, um, we got really far ahead of ourselves with Tarantino uh, in that we were working really hard to make that interview happen, his return to the show. Uh, then we got an awful lot of time with him. If anybody's been following us on our social media accounts, you'll know that uh, we've been talking about the fact that Quentin gave us a, a lot of his time, and of which we're very, very thankful. And then what was really funny is – uh, while we were prepping for all this and while, we, while we've been figuring out how best to present the Quentin Tarantino interview, uh, we were thrown the opportunity to interview Sam Mendes. And we had to very quickly pivot. Uh, and, and I headed to Chicago and spent some time at Jake's place. And the two of us got uh, Sam in Chicago. Uh, the, the day after, Kevin actually got him himself in Washington, D.C. He's doing this regional tour. And so, uh, but what was amazing is Universal, who we want to thank right now, uh, specifically reached out to us and said Sam would be a really good fit on your podcast on Real Blend, um, especially for this movie, which while is not completely about the one shot, uh, is is a technical achievement. And here we get into a lot of the filmmaking tricks and processes uh, that that we'll find very fascinating in this conversation with uh, Sam Mendes. But I, I want to note that like we really did go out of our way to start with more of the emotional uh, storytelling character bits before we got right into the yeah, but Deacons and the one shot kind of thing. <laughs> we dialed ourselves back. Enough, Deacons, though. Yeah, to keep uh, Sam Mendes engaged. So, without further ado, the Real Blend interview with 1917 director Sam Mendes. Uh, guys, we are so happy to be joined by the director of 1917 and several other amazing films, Sam Mendes. Sam, Sam thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. We're uh, in Chicago, uh, where the film played last night. You're taking it all around. The film, I was able to see it twice. I've been lucky enough to see it twice. Right. Uh, once on a big screen, on the big screen the way you intended. Once on my laptop on a screener, so I can sort of catch up with it again. The film plays in what I like to call um, this credible heroism or uh, realistic heroism in that 
there are obstacles that, that you face with your leads, but it's never, um, they're not insurmountable. You know, they're not uh, obstacles that when you get to them, when they get to a challenge, it threatens to potentially take you out of the story. Um, can you talk just a bit about putting the journey together for your lead characters, but, and specifically for Schofield as it continues, but coming up with obstacles for them that would never be like too unrealistic that, that they might be like, oh, he might not be able to do this as, as a soldier. Yeah, I think um, he is a kind of, they both are kind of accidental heroes, the sense in which they're representative, the two amongst two million, you know, and I didn't want an audience at the beginning of the movie to feel like they were special uh, or I was trying to announce them as special. Mm -hmm. I think especially in the way that any human being is special, capable of immense reserves of strength under duress and, and under extreme pressure. So, yes, I, I think they become heroes in a way during the course of the picture. Um, although it does define, it did ask you to define what heroism means. And in terms of obstacles, well, weirdly, um, the moment that we find them in the war, this is the moment when the Germans have abandoned the lines and gone to, retreated to a new line, the Hindenburg line, which is nine miles back from where these men are. And so where there are obstacles, it's nothing compared to getting over no man's land when under attack. Mm -hmm. You know, so normally, I suppose, first world war movies are about stasis, you know, people trapped in trenches, trapped, unable to go over the top, and if they do go over the top, probably going to their deaths. Mm. But here, there... There are moments in the movie when I think that they think the journey is going to be easy. Not easy, exactly, but easier than they thought. Right. Um, those are all false dawns. But um, <clears throat> but there was a particular moment when one of them has to cross a bridge that's been uh, blown across a canal. And we talked about that sequence, Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, and I a lot because I didn't want him to suddenly become... James Bond, you know, right. I didn't want him to suddenly become someone who was capable of uh, crazily brilliant, you know. Uh, like an acrobat. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just an action, an action star. Yeah, really. right. Um, so how do you tell a story of um, you turn the story so it catches the light in a different way? It doesn't seem to conform to action cliches or, or war movie cliches of things that you've seen and yet test them to the limit. And I think it all comes down to details, you know. Um, I'm quite proud that the first two, as it were, action sequences of the movie, one involves a rat and the other involves a, a crashed plane, neither of which represent the danger as coming from the areas that you think is going to come from, mm. you know. Um, and that pleased me because in a way I was trying to create, you know, I mean, I don't know what a conventional war movie is, but this certainly isn't because it's not got much combat or bloodshed in it. So... Um, I was looking for unusual ways for that tension to manifest itself. And, um, and so, yes, it was a, a lot of it was discussing what it was possible for a man, a normal, you know, um, ostensibly unheroic foot soldier, uh, what it was possible to credibly buy them doing. But I think also it's a movie that culminates in an act of extreme heroism and, um, almost foolhardiness in a way. Mm. And you want to build to that moment and make it seem inevitable. Um, 
And I think if he's done lots of other things like that, then somehow the climax no longer makes sense. So, you know, and, and even he himself, when he steps into that environment, when, you know, you'll see, if you've seen the trailer, you see him running along the trench front as hundreds of men pour over the top, running at right angles to him. Even he, at the beginning of that journey, can't believe he himself is doing it. You can see it on his face, thinking, what, what am I doing? Right. This is insane. And yet he somehow has to do it because it's the only way he knows to get the message through. So, yeah, I think it's something that we talked about every day. How do you define, you know, how far can you push these men? Right. You know, for every movie about World War I that I can think of, I can think of probably 10 movies about World War II. I feel like mm. pop culture storytellers, filmmakers have just leaned a little bit more toward World War II. And there's a much more definitive villain, I would say, maybe during World War II. Mm -hmm. Why do you think pop culture, filmmakers, storytellers lean, have leaned more so toward World War II? Well, the center of the movie industry is the United States. And the United States had a presence in World War II. Fair enough. <laughs> That's so, really interesting. So I think that is a big part of it. I think you as a culture here associate it with the war much more. Whereas I think in my country, in the UK... Weirdly, even though it was an older war, the, the First World War throws a, casts a bigger shadow because it, it, it was the death of a generation. So for us, it was, a, it was a national tragedy on a different scale. And I think you say it absolutely rightly. I think there was a definable villain in, in World War II. I sure. think, you know, it's, there's no one out there who doesn't think the Nazis are the baddest, <laughs> you know. But there was a moral conundrum at the centre of World War I that was much more of a grey area. You could argue both were in the right. They were both sent to their deaths, both sides sent to their deaths, well, all sides by, by you know, politicians and generals who knew no better. Um, so I think there's that. And then I think also there's this sense in which the war is a war of paralysis that actually is a very static war. Trenches, no man's land, mud, that's it. You know, and for large chunks of the war, that was just it. You know, hundreds of thousands of men died in 200 yards of land. So... Very difficult to tell a, a resting visual story, and movies are a visual, visual medium, but also, you know, there's a danger of repetition in a standard World War I movie. The greatest World War I movies are about the relationship between the generals, you know, who are not on the front, and those who were, i.e. Piles of Glory, Grand Illusion, these sorts of movies. Um, but the, the best movies about other wars... I think now something like Apocalypse Now or, or Saving Private Ryan are about journeys. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we, the, the, the task was, the goal was to find a journey within this static war that we could take and would make sense. Uh, I'm always interested in the casting of pictures like this. You could take a, a war picture like this and just populate every single role with recognizable A-list actors, right? Um, you choose to employ your recognizable actors at very strategic points. <laughs> Um, and it's such an immersive experience, 1917, but you get to the point, too, where you're like, oh, wait, Colin Firth is in this? Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, it's Benedict. Oh. Um, is that a concern ever for yours of just for a minute, like you have a famous face now coming up, they might take the audience out of it just a bit in that facial Yeah, image. yeah. No, I mean, I think you, but, you know, there's a sort of, um, well, first of all, the reason these people are famous and well-known uh, is because they're really good. Sure. Um, and you want the best actors to play the roles, and you trust that a good actor will, will you know, you might think, you know, for a second, oh, that's someone I recognize. But then you start listening to what they're saying and you forget about that. Right. That's, this is a uh, pact that you sign with movies on a regular basis, right? Oh, that's Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. Oh, now, no, he's not Leonardo DiCaprio. He's a guy lost in the wilderness trying yeah. to find, yeah. you know, <laughs> revenge is the death of his son. So, you know, that, that 
you know, I, I think it's fine that as long as you do it for a reason. And, you know, when you get to a certain age, um, uh, you know, if you're any good, you're pretty famous. You know what I mean? There's a Colin Firth. I'm not saying loads of Colin Firths out there, but, yeah. you know. Um, but I think there was also that sense in which, you know, you it's no does you no harm when you're trying to make a movie that's big and ambitious and expensive and, and you're asking a studio to let you cast whoever the hell you want as the two leads because they have to be young and you want a new relationship between the audience and these characters. Um, to have that sort of slight comfort level for a big movie of, you know what, you may have to follow these two, but you're going to get a few little special treats yeah, on the yeah, way. But they're not on the poster you know, or in the trailer. No, no, or that's anything. true. You're not yeah. leaning on them. Yeah. No, we're sense. not leaning on them. And, yeah. I, and, I, and that was one of the things I said to them, actually. I said, listen, you know, I had to, I call them all, you know, directly. And I know most of them, I've worked with most of them before. And I was able to say, listen, I want you to be part of the project because of your, because I want you to act in it. I don't want you to sell the movie. We're not going to put you on the poster. We're not going to ask you to do the junket, right. which is why I'm doing everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and, um, uh, but I mean, I think that's a big deal with these guys. I think now, you know, uh, being in the movie is only half the job, you know, sure. uh, you know, they, they spend a lot of time uh, feeling like the, the commercial success of the movie is their responsibility, you know, and I think for them just to come and be actors, you know, and be supporting players in a project that they believe in, uh, in its entirety and not feel like they're balancing the whole success or failure of the movie on their shoulders, you know, and that people can say, well, you know, Benedict, he couldn't sell 1917, you know. Uh, <laughs> nobody, nobody's going to blame Benedict if this movie doesn't, <laughs> isn't a commercial success, you know yeah, what I mean? Sure. So I think that's, that's a big deal with these guys. I don't feel like they're having to carry the burden of it. Um, and and I, I had a real insight. I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of do it I'm going to work, cast this movie on the domino theory, which is that if I can get Colin Firth, then I can call Benedict Cumberbatch and say, by the way, Colin's doing one scene, you know, and he'll go, oh, well, if Colin's doing it, you know, maybe I'll do it. And then <laughs> I, I can call Andrew Scott. He's sending Scott. a message to me. Yeah, and then I can say, oh, Andrew Scott, you know, that, that actually Colin Firth and Benedict Cumberbatch are doing it. And, you know, so then it becomes a sort of, um, once you get one of them to say yes, yeah, right. you know, the other ones become progressively easier. That's funny. I love the the reasons that you cast marginally unknown actors in the two lead lead uh, roles. I think it's brilliant. But obviously, on the flip side of that, you've had actor or you've had films that have starred you know Tom Hanks and Paul Newman and Kevin Spacey and Jake Gyllenhaal. What roles dictate a movie star, a well known actor, and what roles dictate someone that's maybe a little bit lesser known? Well, you know, I couldn't make Revolutionary Road without Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. That, they're movie stars, and I wanted them to. You know, in a way, the two things came hand in hand, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but then as, you know, in supporting roles, I cast the young actor called Michael Shannon, you yeah. know. And, um, You're good at casting, you know, you did the same thing with Daniel Craig and Road to Perdition, where you, yeah, you yeah. get these supporting well, I mean, actors. You know, that, and, that, and, and in those roles, you can start, you can unlock. So the yeah. normal movie would be that you know, a movie like 1917 would be two movie stars, mm -hmm. and then the other supporting players would be, you know, would, would be less famous. And so I've, I've, I've inverted that in this movie. Um, you know, I think some movies need uh, movie stars in order to persuade audiences to go and see them. And then, you know, there was a... But, of course, when I did America Beauty, um, Kevin Spacey and Annette Bening were not considered movie stars. They they were... You know, the, there was a certain pressure from the studio in, in those days mm -hmm. to cast people who were more box office than them. They had not proved themselves as leading actors. Um, so... It depends, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, it looks like, you know, they're giant stars and they, you know, won Oscars and what have you... Uh, but at the time, that wasn't the case. So, um, 
you're very, sometimes you're very aware, you know, that your pot, I mean, Motopedition was a good example. You know, when you've got Tom Hanks and Paul Newman, you know, you can afford to cast a couple of unknowns called Jude Law and Daniel Craig. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now it seems like we're loaded yeah. with stars. Even but again, Ian Tyler has gone on to do great things. He has, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, there's <laughs> other people, Jennifer Jason Lee, Stanley Tucci. It's a, it's a great cast. So, you know, and not to mention an array of brilliant um, uh, local Chicago actors. I, I noticed, uh, I read a wonderful review of the Tracy Letts play at Steppenwolf the other day with Ian Barford in the, in the, in the lead role who, you know, was in the movie. Uh, so I like to think I made him as well. You know, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean... Um, but I think less and less movies are... I mean, I think one of the, I don't know, side effects of the rise of Marvel and, and the superhero movie um, and franchise films has been that, you know, and you don't need me to tell you that movie stars are worth less now yeah. um, than they were maybe 10 years ago. They can't open, you know, traditionally open movies in the way they used to be able to. You do get, you know, movies like, I don't know, The Mummy, for example, with Tom Cruise and and and, and Russell, uh, Russell Crowe. Crow huge stars. Giant stars, but they don't open the movie in the way that you're expect, they're expected to. And that wouldn't have happened, I think, 10 years ago. Um, so it is an unusual time, but it also in some ways, frees you up as a director. I think 10 years ago, there would have been more pressure on me to cast two stars in these roles. Right. And, and I, but I think now there's a feeling that, you know what, that is not the thing that makes, you know, Life of Pi didn't have movie stars yeah. in it. You know, you went to see it because of the, it felt like you wanted to see that. Everyone was telling you, you can see it in the cinema, go and see it in the cinema. So, you know, you feel like, well... Dunkirk, for example, you know, look, it had lots of people in it who you've seen before, from from Harry Styles to to, to Ken Browner and Mark Rylance, but you weren't going to see a Harry Styles movie. Right, you right, know, you right. were going to see Dunkirk. And and I think that it weirdly has unlocked the possibility of making these big movies without movie stars in ways that perhaps a while ago wouldn't have been possible. Fascinating to see, yeah. the, see the industry evolve that way. I'll bring it back to 1917. Um, both times that I was able to see it, there's a, a moment we get to, and I'm paraphrasing the line, there's Andrew Scott when he essentially gives him the flare gun, and he says, uh, would you be so kind as to throw it back to us, essentially. Yeah, when they start shooting it. And him. I laugh each time, and each time it reminds me, oh, wait, I can laugh during this movie. You know, I think the... the <laughs> you are allowed. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> there's a push to this movie that it's like, it's super intense, it's immersive, but it's funny also. Can you talk about how you employed humor at different points? Well, there's not a great deal of it. There's a lot of mordant black humor, you yeah. know, kind of, uh, um, and people on the edge who, you know, um, which is a very British thing, I think, as well, are just, you know, um, making making jokes in the darkest, <laughs> the darkest of the dark. Um, yeah, there are. I mean, they're human beings, and they, they're also um, struggling to keep their spirits up in almost impossible situation. Uh, but I was very conscious, along with Christy, to construct very specific personalities that they met along the way. You know, there are authority figures, there are cynics, there are those that they can trust and those that they can't. And we, it's such a present tense movie, you have to judge these characters very fast. Even people with tiny roles towards the end, you know, that he meets uh, uh, Schofield, you know, he's rushing to meet the captain at one point, and he, when he finally gets there, he finds a man, a big man, played by Justin Edwards, in floods of tears, just utterly right. lost. And he doesn't really say anything. 
and and seconds later he's gone. And to me, trying to give definition to every role um, is the important thing. So some deal with it with humour, some can't deal with it at all, some deal with it by brazening it out, bravado, uh, bullying, uh, you know, and some, like Mark Strong's character, uh, represent a kind of calm in the middle, a sort of wisdom, which for Schofield, when at the point where he meets Mark Strong's character, Captain Smith, it, it changes his in, the entire course of the movie. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think we work very hard to give each one definition. Jumping to the long shots and, and your work with Roger Deakins, I, I read a lot of interviews um, before you and I sat down and and it seems like everyone seems to be, a lot of people being, are asking you what you've learned from other directors who have attempted this. We look at Alfred Hitchcock mm, and mm. Rope. And, but I'm curious, what, if, what did you and Roger accomplish in 1917 that the next guy who tries this should be learning from you? Oh, the next guy. Okay. Uh, I would say, you know, make sure you get a lot of sleep before you start the whole process <laughs> because you'll have some sleepless nights. Um, I think that it's unlike any film because I think that the way the camera works is very particular in this movie. Studying uh, Birdman, for example, Birdman is a much more dreamlike construction that takes place over several days. And even though it's one shot, it's a, it's a sort of piece of magic realism in a way. It also exists in the same you know, kind of circular motion going through the same rooms over and over again in, a, in, that, uh, in that environment backstage and on stage. Um, whereas this, this moves forward. And I think that um, I, I would say that you have to, um, uh, you have to construct your own language to do with the relationship between camera and actor. Um, and sometimes when you, you find that, and it suits the material. I'm thinking of something like Son of Saul, for yeah. example. You can find something remarkable. That's a very, very subjective piece of filmmaking in which pretty much everything that is beyond our central figure is out of focus. You know, it's a very shallow depth of field and you, that sense of threat and horror of what's going on just out of your peripheral vision is very palpable in that movie. But that's a very, very developed... But you can't apply that to every film, you know. I mean... I, I think you ha it has to be integral to the material. I, I would hesitate to, to try this on another piece of material. You can't apply it yeah. randomly. To a sort of, um, <laughs> so it has to make sense. So I, I think it has to match your material. Could you imagine a Bond movie with it? <laughs> well, you know, I, I did try in the, in the first reel of Spectre. I, you know, that, it opened with an eight-minute shot. Yeah. And I wanted to do the whole opening sequence as one. But I got to the point where I, I thought the best way to tell this story is to cut after about eight minutes. Um, and I think, you know, that taught me that if I was to do a whole movie like this, if I ever got to that place again, I would take a step back and rewrite and restructure it so I never felt that um, because I never wanted to be there on the day thinking, damn, this would be so much better if I could just edit. Right, right, right. And I, I never did on this, but it was partly because we rehearsed so long and I, I wrote that into the script. Okay. I want to talk about teaching your actors that it's okay to mess up and just keep going. Because you've spoken about sort of these happy accidents where, you know, if you trip and you fall down, it's fine. We don't have to stop and start back. Just just keep going. That's life. Was that something you really had to drill in at first? I mean, did these actors kind of want to keep it perfect every time? Yeah. That 
sometimes you say it's okay to fuck up and <laughs> keep going, but sometimes it's like, no, cut. <laughs> um, that, that's a big fuck up. You can't do that. Um, so, you know, it's about degree. I, I, a couple of times I shouted, keep going, keep going. Um, uh, I think it's clear. They sort of instinctively feel like, oh, that's a mistake that my, ca- my character's made as opposed to the I, the actor, have made. Do you oh, know what I mean? So it's just, you know, there's... And, and line fluffs, I said, don't, don't, don't worry about them because we can deal with that. And sometimes it'll feel, you know, just like a stutter and natural or whatever. So it's, it's just a degree. I mean, there are times when I shout, had to shout cut and they couldn't hear me because they were halfway, they were half a mile away down a hill somewhere. And I, they were halfway through the take and I, it wasn't what I wanted. A lot of the time it's because, you know, let's say the camera's done quite what I wanted or we, we lost one of them for a second or um, there's been a bump. Uh, so I just say cut <clears throat> and they would just keep going, you know, <laughs> I would have to sort of get send out a messenger to get them to come back. So you had um, to send a messenger to the messengers. I know, I know. <laughs> it really felt like that at times because of course we were, we had to be out of sight, you know, crew was over the next hill. You oh, know? Yeah. And uh, we, we were, we had a lot of aerials just to maintain radio contact with camera and sound. Um, so, yeah, it's it's instinct, really. Uh, I mean, I, I I kind of felt like um, uh, they would understand the the difference between a good mistake and a bad mistake, you know. But it's the whole that you're looking for. You know, things behave differently. Animals behave differently. Babies, you know, the light changes, the conditions change. Suddenly, wind picks up, or the sun comes out, or you know, a cloud passes in front of us, or whatever it is. That's what you want. You want the feeling. You want this sort of constantly shifting light. And and uh, you know, um, a lot of the time we got what we wanted, but not necessarily when we wanted it. And 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 so that was interesting too, just to um, to watch. I mean, there are all sorts of moments in the movie that that stuff happens accidentally, which retrospectively seems perfect, like <laughs> George being knocked over as he's running down the line at the end, which was not planned, um, or. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I remember saying ideally to Roger, he said, look at the ideally as he sits down against the tree at the end of the movie, the sun comes out. And he said, well, I can do a lot of things, but I can't organize the sun to come out. <laughs> and guess what? The sun came out. So, you know, that, that sort of thing you just... I credit Roger for that. So he can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did say, you know, Roger, you said you can do it, but... I think you've got, you got a hotline. And maybe he is God. Yeah. It would make a lot of sense. Would, yeah. yes. For a lot of people, I think he represents that. Yeah. Uh, all right, I'm going to shift to the Bond franchise very quickly because I'm oh, just sure. curious, having uh, done two back-to-back, uh, yeah. the first time in a long time that someone has done that, if you're going to be able to enjoy No Time to Kill as a fan, knowing how that sausage is made. No Time to Die. Oh, No Time to Die. No time which, to, uh, but no I time prefer to call it No Time to Diet. Because <laughs> that's how I felt during the Bond franchise. Um, am I going to be able to enjoy it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No. Totally. I, I'm. I'm. I think doing this movie is. You know. I think if I hadn't done another movie, it would be weird. You know. Um, not that I wanted to do it, but that it, it would seem very odd that you know there it was this. Thing. But I've gone so far into another world, you know, and so immersed in it that to me it just seems like I can't wait. You know, I'm going to be there. I'll be there at the premiere. You know. And um, it's my friends and, you know, I'm proud of a lot of them and I cast a lot of them. I mean, I look at the trailer and there's Leia Seydoux, yep. Christoph Waltz, yep. Rafe Fiennes, Naomi Harris, Ben Wishart. Cast all of them, you yep. know. So it's a little bit like, you know, my, 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 my bunch, you know. Yep. So I feel, I feel possessive and very supportive of them. So, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly... Have you asked them it. for details? 
Or do you want to know nothing? No, no, no. Of the story? No, no. I don't want to know. I want to be, I want to be completely uh, a virgin when it comes to this movie. That's awesome. Good. I'm glad uh, you get that. Last question for me. I, I know we're heading into the Oscar season, and, and this is obviously something you've been through before, and, and by no means are we trying to name drop or anything, but we had Quentin Tarantino on the show a few days ago. <coughs> Did you? And uh, he told us something really interesting, which was we were talking to him about Pulp Fiction losing to Forrest Gump during the, yeah. the, the 94, 95 Oscars. And he said that he was glad that he lost the big ones earlier in his career because he doesn't know what kind of impact that would have had on yeah. him moving forward. He did actually win an Oscar for Pulp Fiction. Well, yeah, he, yeah, 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 he won screenplay, but, but obviously lost yeah. picture and, and director. Yeah. Um, you won picture and director yeah. for, your, for, for American Beauty very early, 20 years, uh, 20th anniversary. Yes. What does winning that early in your career, how did that affect you moving forward? Um, gosh, it's difficult to say because I don't know... Any, I don't know how it would have been otherwise because I've only lived one life. I didn't. I didn't live the uh, sliding doors version. Where <laughs> I didn't win the Oscar, and and and, it, and then I could spend the next twenty years saying I'm so glad I didn't yeah. win the Oscar. <laughs> right? Um, it it was slightly surreal. I mean, you know, you got to be honest. There was there was an element. I mean, you, you never want to seem ungrateful, and of course, I was very thrilled on one level, but on another level, it seemed absurd. Um, you know, and that year particularly, I was that was a, it was an inc- incredible year for movies. You know. It was the year of Magnolia and Fight Club and Three Kings and Being John Malkovich and The Insider and Sixth Sense. I mean, there were movies by Scorsese and Altman and Lynch, and these are my heroes, you know. And then they give the Oscar to me, you know what I'm saying, Um, with those guys in the auditorium. (laughs) You know, it seemed preposterous on one level, and I felt like, okay, I'm going to have to sort of go back and treat it. I always said I would treat it like a bank loan that I'd pay off over a number of years. And, you know... I was really determined to do two things. One, to carry on working in the theatre and two, to keep pushing and trying out different styles of ways of making movies. You know, um, so I cashed in my chips a bit by making Road to Perdition, which was, you know, a pretty bleak movie with, you know, uh, with some big movie stars in which all of them died, which I wouldn't be allowed to do anymore. Um, and, uh, and, I've, and I've tried to continue um, experimenting ever since. I'm not Quentin. You know, Quentin writes his own material, and until now I haven't really done that. And Quentin's also a brilliant writer, which is something that's often forgotten. And, um, and so for me, I suppose it, it gave me immense freedom, um, and, uh, and I can only be grateful for that. We are grateful yeah. for you joining us on this oh, podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, we hit you with a few questions you haven't heard. Yeah, yeah. that was a good, that was a very good, very, very good one. So thank you, guys. Oh, of course. Yeah. Thank you very much. Really. All right, take care. Thanks, thanks for chatting. And now you're done. Yeah. <laughs> Would you want I, was, I was only joking. I wasn't <laughs> joking. That's why I'm here. I said at the beginning, but I want to repeat uh, our thanks and appreciation to Universal Studios for uh, seeking us out, for bringing Sam Mendes to us for recognizing that he would be a really good guest on the podcast 1917. This is a film um, that I think all three of us would say you absolutely have to see on the big screen if you have any interest in seeing it whatsoever. Uh, It is a a full-blown cinematic experience. And it's just like, it was fun prepping for the Mendez interview because of the titles that he has on his resume. Obviously, you heard in the in the conversation, Jake, talking a lot about Road to Perdition. But when you talk about a guy who started with American Beauty, uh, has two Bond films underneath his belt. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing filmography. He name-dropped Revolutionary Road in the middle of that. And he was like, you know, I could have made that without Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. And I was like, the, the name drops. Stop it, Sam. What are you doing yeah. to us? Also, like one movie that I, I don't often super think about, but uh, and he didn't bring it up in the conversation, Jarhead. 
Yeah. Uh, Jarhead, also, Away yeah, We Go. Yeah. I love Away We Go, too, with yeah, Away uh, we go. Yeah. and Maya Rudolph. It's yeah. a really good film. Maya Rudolph, yeah. yeah. Sean, you mentioned so, that they were in D.C. I, I just wanted to mention a couple of things that, that I learned from them briefly that I thought was interesting. The writer, uh, the co-writer yeah. of the film, which I found interesting, uh, when I interviewed Sam Mendes and the cast and the writer as well, we talked about this idea of the script and did the script contain the stitches? So if you're not familiar for our audience, uh, stitching, obviously, this is a a movie that's shot and edited to look like one shot, very Birdman style, rope style, Hitchcock style. Um, but the script did not have the stitches where the actual edits would take place. And this, I found it interesting. They had a 45 page script in addition to the, the actual screenplay that was the shootings that had the stitches in it. Um, so there wow. was a, a separate 45 page. And then the writer, I asked the writer about the scene when, George McKay is it George Mc, is it George McKee? Uh, someone told me how to pronounce his name. I'm sorry, I'm Mackay, botching that. I think Jake Mc, is. Mc, oh, no, Mackay. Mackay, Mackay, you're right. That scene when George McKay is doing the famous run from the trailer where the 1917 logo pops up. That scene is four pages in a script. That scene alone oh, wow. is four pages, and I found it just extremely fascinating that the that the stitches were done in a way where Mendez just did not want the film to come off as a gimmick. And that was one of the fascinating things about the story is because, because you have this balance where you're telling a film in one shot, but you don't want the audience to think about the one shot, but it is a really cool technical achievement by Roger Deakins. Uh, and I just found these things fascinating. Also, Dean Charles Chapman. I don't know if you guys were, I did not know this until he told me this. So this was news to me. This I'm, I guess this is already out there. He has not seen season seven or eight of Game of Thrones. Which blew my mind. So we all remember at the end of season six, um, I asked him about that scene where he dives out of the castle. And I wanted to know how they filmed it. And he was telling me these great stories about falling onto like these boxes, having to turn his head right before he hit the box. We didn't break his nose. Um, and he was telling me he did not want to be written off the show. He was actually angry about it. Um, and I, I, and he goes, I just have not watched season seven today. I'm like, dude, Watch seven at least. Like how like seven's a great season. <laughs> you gotta know how it ends. Eight, Watch the well, whole eight, thing. You gotta eight, know how eight it ends. Was you know critically divisive, but I could you imagine being on? You know he played a Lannister earlier on, and then they switched him to. Um, I'm sorry. Wait, well, what, what did he play earlier on? He was he was a Stark or something earlier on in the show. He had he played two characters in Game of Thrones. He was a different family I'm in the beginning of the show, and then he became the character he is at the end towards the end of the show. So he was a different family member at some point early in the show. That guy is a very interesting story. He was also in Blinded by the Light. He's great in that as well. But a lot of interesting things. Sam Mendes is incredible. And uh, if you get a chance, check out some of the behind-the-scenes featurettes about how they did the one-shot stuff. It was pretty wild. But the fact they had a 45-page script just for the shooting is pretty wicked to me. Um, but yeah. Well, you could you could see it when you see the movie. Yeah. Um, I want to mention that there was a spoiler question that we had in the Sam Mendes interview that we had to pull uh, as Gabe was listening to it. He and I sort of discussed what was revealed in it, and we kind of realized that it won't make sense 100% for people who haven't yet seen the film. And if you heard it before you saw 1917, you might not necessarily want to uh, know this. So um, keep an eye out on Cinema Blend's YouTube page and on our Twitter feed as well, too, because we're going to post that answer uh, as its own little quick part of the conversation. And I think you guys will really appreciate what Mendes had to say about this particular thing after you've seen the film.
clarification on on the Dean Charles Chapman thing. He played two characters in the show. I'm going to read this directly from this uh, from Google. It says Dean not only played his main character Tommen, he also played Martin Lannister in two episodes back in season three. So he played two. Oh. Isn't that wild? Like, it's so crazy to me that he played another character. Who the hell is Martin I don't Lannister? remember. He was in some earlier scenes. I remember Lauren pointing it out to me. But Dean Charles Chapman, one of the lead stars of, of, of 1917, played two characters in Game of Thrones and has not seen seven and eight. That it blows my mind. Him, him bowing out of the window is my favorite gift. Dude. Just one of my favorite I, gifts of all time. I'm going to send you, I'll send you a clip of what, of him talking about it. That there's the, just the dead dive he takes. Like it's kind of wicked how they did it. Yeah. Yeah. That gif is what Gabe wishes he could do right now. <laughs> all the time. Yes. All right. Golden Globe nominations. Uh, we're gonna. We're not gonna go through each category. Um, this isn't officially awards blend, and plus we have a couple other things we need to get to. Uh, but we have a couple of major topics that we want to bring up about the Golden Globe nominations as we get closer uh, to the awards, the Oscars season, and the Oscar nominations, and how this uh, spectacular year in film is going to try to shake out. And and one thing we keep talking about is that no matter what, because the Oscars outside of Best Picture are limited to five nominations per category. There's going to be a lot of talented people uh, on the outside looking in when the Oscar nominations are revealed. There's just, there's too much goodness this year, which is, again, a little staggering to me in that if you go back and listen to episodes from the early part of this year, we were all struggling to even put together what might be a potential top 10. And now it's like a a glut of things that I think we all would like to uh, celebrate and appreciate. Uh, the, The one topic that I want to kick off with in terms of the Golden Globes is just Netflix dominating, um, and again, we got to put the Globes in, in a in a perspective of it's ninety members or eighty nine members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. So it's not anybody really necessarily tied to the industry. It's a small group that nominates. Uh, they do have a very big and very popular award show in the Golden Globes that airs on NBC. But they do they get credit for being one of the earliest indicators of who is in the race and who is out of the race. And we do pay a fair amount of attention to it. And I bring up Netflix sort of dominating by getting a lot of nominations for The Irishman, for Marriage Story, for getting nominations for Dolomite, um, is that last year, if you guys can remember, Roma was their big player. And we were still trying to figure out, like, how is the streaming giant going to fare against the big studios uh, in the uh, in the spending for the Oscar race uh, and 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 getting recognition for their movies, are, are people going to pay attention to the screeners? Are they going to go out and see some of these movies in theaters? And just from one year to the next, you now have uh, a ton of Netflix movies just dominating, and that that really caught me by surprise. I thought Netflix would do good. I didn't think they were going to do this good with the Globes. I, I just don't understand why the Golden Globes don't open their show with "Welcome to whatever year this is for the Golden Globes. We are the show that nominated the Tourist." Uh, for whatever <laughs> picture category they put that in. I mean, like, I just find this... Because then the Oscars would have to start their show with, you know, welcome to the Oscars. We gave Green Book Best Picture last yeah, year. Yeah, that's, mm. that's a little bit different because Green Book's actually a really good movie. I, I, don't, I don't think it's Best Picture, but Taurus was a, was a train wreck. It was awful. And, and like, the, the idea... That's why I always look at these Globe nominations and I'm just like... While I agree with some of them, I just find it fascinating and laughable um, that films enter comedy. I know studios pick that as well, but it just I just find it to be really interesting that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a comedy uh, musical, even though I, I know Quentin Tarantino would agree with that category, but I just find that interesting. 
Okay, so then let me put it to some of our, our two next topics that we we're going to bring up. Kevin, do you think that it's important then that Greta Gerwig, for instance, like we wanted to mention the fact that she didn't necessarily get into, or she didn't, she didn't get into the best director category, and and people would be quick to call it like a snub. But but what you're kind of saying, and and I do agree to a certain extent, is that it that that might not actually matter, right? You mean with the well, the Globes are interesting because. I say they don't matter, and like it's same with the thing with the Oscars. Sometimes, like we get upset about the decisions that are made with these award shows. Sure. Um, I tune in every year. I get excited. My wife and I have a party at our house for just us. We dress up and we watch all these shows. I love award season. That's why we started this show initially as an awards podcast. Um, yep. Greta Gerwig is an interesting situation because this year is arguably one of the greatest years of cinema I've ever seen. I think. You guys would both agree with that. It's been an incredible year for cinema. You can only choose five. Um, and I think Greta Gerber did a phenomenal job with her film, uh, Little Women, which shot on film. It looks amazing cinematography-wise. It, it is a very, very amazing, well-done film. It's incredible confidence for a second feature. Like, I'm blown away by that second feature. Yeah. You know, it, but her yeah. getting snubbed is an interesting question. Like, it comes down to a lot of questions of how how they were nominated how how films were pitched i mean i i just think in general um i don't know it's it, it's an interesting question I, I i would like to have seen her in there but it's just it, there's just so many great films this year it's hard to choose sometimes an early snub works in a in a movie's favor you know in an Argo ben, ben affleck kind of way yeah exactly and so maybe the academy then turns around and says oh little women deserved a lot more recognition yeah, uh, but because if there's that much uproar, uproar over a movie not getting nominated then the academy is going to go oh maybe i should pop that screener in if that many people are ticked off that this movie didn't get nominated i should at least give it a shot all right but jake i want to bring it to the next point then because you would argue that that the joker and todd phillips did get a boost by their globe nominations you know, it's weird. You know, we I think we're all on Twitter, obviously, and we all kind of subscribe to what is referred to as film Twitter. And and there is this like weird backlash, I feel like, happening with Joker, where a majority of critics I'm I'm I follow and 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 seem to to like and respect their opinions. It seems like all of a sudden hate Joker. Like Joker's the movie to hate right now. That's the cool I thing like Joker. To do. I like Joker a lot. Um so there seemed to be this uproar over how much love the Golden Globes gave it, but um, I think Todd Phillips getting that that uh, director nomination legitimized it uh, in in the eyes of the Academy, and I think it it made it. I mean, don't forget it. It kind of kicked off the award season with uh, with that. Was it Venice? Venice, yeah. Did it won? Yep. I mean, so I mean, it's it's yeah. It's been it's been on the radar for quite some time. What I don't understand is how it's sort of become this season's green book where it's winning stuff or being nominated for stuff and people are going, oh, God, no, why? I mean, I don't quite understand when that happened um, but because uh, I'm a big fan of Joker. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think the Golden Globes really pushed forward Joker in a, in a big, bad way. Well, in a weird way, Joker was actually very critically divisive, strangely enough. Like, it, it, ha- it has a very uh, a rather low rating on Rotten Tomatoes considering the type of film it is. I think it's below 70%, I believe. Um, but I, it's, it is an interesting thing, right? Because Joker made a billion dollars. Now, now is it too popular? Is it too successful to, uh, to run in the Oscar race? Um, and it, it is one of those weird things. But in reality, while we all love Joker, it was very 
critically divisive. I mean, there were people who absolutely hated that film. Um, it, I don't think it was universally yeah. loved or liked. So uh, I do find it, but but so much so that it would really tick people off that much if it. Well, I mean, like Walking like I've seen people that are claiming that they're going to be outraged if Joaquin Phoenix wins Best Actor, and I'm going I mean, like. I, with that performance, you're going to be upset if, if that performance wins Best Actor? Well, there's something Ryan Johnson said recently. I think it was actually in our in our podcast interview where he talks about online <laughs> online film uh, discussions and how small of a fraction of people that is. Uh, and, and yeah, it is it, here's the weird thing about social media, and we can all agree with this. We look at social media all day long because that's part of our jobs. You have to think about for a second, though, because everything on social media, it seems immediate. It seems important. It seems legit. But at the end of the day, that's a very small fraction of the world that is on that platform. I mean, yes, there's so true. A lot of people are there. Don't get me wrong. But Ryan Johnson talks a lot about this idea that that is just a little portion of fandom. Um, And while I don't love The Last Jedi, uh, I I admired Ryan Johnson talking about this idea that you had. And that's what I wanted to say. This is something I want to say. I was driving home from work today, and this is something I was really thinking about a lot on the way home. Look at Knives Out. Like I am blown away that a filmmaker could come back from what he went through on Jedi and come back with a film like that. And as right. somebody who deals with anxiety and depression and things in my own life and we read comments and it, and it throws our day a certain way, I find it interesting that he took all of that hatred and still got up and made this phenomenal film. And now the movie's being celebrated. It got Golden Globe nominations. And I think to myself and I look at that situation, and I go, how the heck did you wake up one morning and decide I'm going to keep going as a filmmaker? How, how am I not going to let this take me down. And I thought about Jake's comments just now about Joker. These are, these are very small, minimal fractions of people that we follow that do speak with a loud voice towards us because it does appear that way. And I, and I just find that to be a, such an interesting perspective about how much we weigh social media and how much we look at things and go, this is gospel. This is definitely the way film Twitter is saying this. Look at Captain Marvel. That movie was destroyed, destroyed by people before it even came out. So much so that Rotten Tomatoes- Before they even saw it, yep. And Rotten Tomatoes had to change their platform because of audience reviews. And then look how much money the movie made. And so I, I, I just think these are things that, I am so guilty of looking at Twitter and thinking that that is the way the world thinks and thinking that's the way the world is. And I just think it's an interesting thing to think about these days. If you think about that, just think about how small a fraction of people that is. That's all I want to say. But And also keep in mind that that, that small fraction of people doesn't vote for the Oscars. Exactly. Think yeah, think about so these that. These people that are that are saying they're screaming these things and oh, saying yeah. what's going to win and what's not going to win and it's not going to be this movie and it's going to be that person. They aren't Academy members. And to Jake's point, so it doesn't matter. To Jake's point, were we seeing anybody on our timeline when the Oscars happened last year saying please let Green Book win Best Picture? I don't think I saw a single individual saying that. Um, and no. maybe people might have predicted it, but nobody was screaming its praises for Best Picture. So that's the weird part about life sometimes is you step off that platform 
There are so many other people out there in the world who are not contributing to this conversation that we have no idea about. And that's that is well, truly I, mind blowing to me, in my opinion. Uh, and one really interesting point I want to bring up that sort of builds off of what you guys are saying here is, is think about Todd Phillips for a second. This is a guy who released a movie in Joker uh, and it gets lauded at the Venice Film Festival. It wins Golden Lion. Um, and, and now we're in a point of the conversation where everybody's uh, not everybody. Social media is telling uh, the world that Joker is shit. It's the same movie, right? Like nothing has changed. Right. How do you how do you even deal with the fact that yeah. something that you gave out to some people in September and they told you it was amazing that now we're into December and people can tell you that the exact same movie that you did and that nothing has, has been altered on it is not a good movie. Like that that it's because- seesaw, I think, would kill me as a as a creative person. But once something's popular, that's what happens. And going back to the whole discussion of Joker and Golden Globes, I I think Joker is, uh, first of all, I don't think anyone was surprised it was nominated. Were they really surprised that movie was nominated? I mean, Joaquin Phoenix delivers one of the best performances in the year. I'm happy Todd Phillips got in. Uh, I actually think that Joaquin could win at this moment. Um, I, I do want to mention something that I found fascinating was the Globes did not nominate Sandler. Uh, and that's something that really really bothered me. Um, and I, and it goes right. to a point that I've texted you guys a lot, a lot about, about the idea of uh, the Academy and award shows, not taking someone seriously who comes from a comedic background like that. And, but you say that, but like Robin Williams won an Oscar. He won an Oscar. Won a lot of comedians. What, Robin Williams won an Oscar for what? And when? Goodwill hunting supporting actor. Right. For, 98? for okay. serious movies. Did they give him an Oscar for Aladdin? Did no, they give him an Oscar for know, Dead Poets Society? Or Dowfire. So my, my point about like this situation is Robin Williams is a, is a much more serious actor than Sandler has ever been. Sandler, Williams had a back uh, track, a, a filmography of serious roles. I, don't, I wouldn't even... I don't even know that I would stamp. Okay, then maybe a okay, maybe a better comparison is uh, Tom Hanks because by, by the time he did Philadelphia... He really had just done a decade of comedy work and a sitcom. Sure. I mean, I would, I would so, argue so that would be turn- that would be an example of them giving a, a comedy guy. I mean, now we know him as a dramatic guy, but that would be an example of giving a comedy guy an Oscar. But Tom guy. Hanks wasn't making Happy Gilmore, uh, uh, whatever, Little Nicky. He wasn't making Billy Elliot or Billy uh, uh, Madison. I, I just feel like. Sandler is in. Okay, then then how do you? Okay, then then on the flip side of this, how do you? Is it you're just saying his movies have been so bad in no. the past? Bad in quotations. Okay, because how do you attribute the fact that J Lo is going to get an Oscar nomination? Well, J Lo and, and J Lo's J Lo's performance is not that great. Well, J Lo, that, that's obviously campaigning. Clearly, uh, I mean, you can campaign anyone. I mean, Shakespeare- so, so do you think if, if Sandler were out there more shaking hands and kissing babies that he'd get an Oscar nomination? Dude, Shakespeare and Love could. beat Saving Private Ryan because of, of, of the campaign. I know, but that's a completely different argument. I'm asking, like, you're talking about how someone's past yeah. can have an effect mm-hmm. on whether or not they get awards consideration. But J-Lo is about to be Academy Award nominee J-Lo. And she has just as much of a, of a I mean, she's the star of Gili. But J-Lo yeah. has yeah. a actually has a really good dramatic past out of sight was incredible uh i think she's done some good dramatic work yeah but 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 yeah but so has sandler see sandler's i I feel like this is a different situation i feel like this would be this i feel like sandler is not jennifer lopez i feel like has a much different situation than adam sandler adam sandler is known 
as a comedian who wrote records with farts and jokes and all these things. He's always been that raunchy comedian guy. And I, and I think that obviously PTA did a brilliant work with him on Punch Drunk Love, tapped into that dramatic angle. He did some good dramatic work in the movie Click, which I didn't love, but I thought he was great in it. But I do think at the end of the day, Adam Sandler may be not considered because of the level of comedy and the um, amount of I, comedy I he did over that. the years. And, 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 but is it I just possible it, that the fact that is it just possible? And, and you know how much I love Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems, and I do think he deserves deserves a nomination. But is it just possible that it's 2019 and he didn't make the top? No, five? I think yeah. I, I, like we have we have said the last six months how good this year is, and that there are so many great performances. And I know that you think okay. he's top five. I want you to give but me. But I think just because he doesn't get nominated doesn't mean it's a group of people going, he made Happy Gilmore, therefore we cannot I want you him. to give me, right now, off the top of your head, yes. five act performances this year that are better than Adam Sandler's in the leading category. No, 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 no I'm, I'm, I'm asking your opinion. I could, I could do it, opinion. but you're going to disagree. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, <laughs> a, I'm actually asking for you to tell me five leading performances that are better than Adam Sandler. Go. I think uh, Joaquin is better. Okay. I think Leo is better. Okay. I think Taron Edgerton is better. Okay. I think Adam Driver is better. And okay. I think De Niro is and better. And De Niro. Okay. Well, then that's your opinion. And, so and, you and, think and those... Is, yeah. And, and by no means am I going, oh, I'm not putting Adam Sandler on that list because he made Happy Gilmore and, and Billy Madison. It's just that I'm sorry. I think that there are a couple that are better than him. And I think Here, it's it's to, to straight up say he didn't get a nomination because of this, I think is a little short-sighted. One thing I'll say before we move on, my point is when I saw Uncut Gems in Toronto in September, and I started telling people that he was that he should be nominated for an Oscar, the general general reaction to that comment was Adam Sandler? Happy Gilmore? Yeah. Billy Madison? And, and, and this this goes right. into the same range as and I've, you guys make fun of me for it. I still think Jeff Daniels deserved an Oscar for his bathroom scene in Dumb and Dumber. But because it's fart jokes, people will not give comedy the same level of adoration that they give drama, even though comedy is harder than drama. At the end of the day, I do think Comedy is harder than drama, but fart jokes are easy. See, I disagree with you. If you actually put an actor on a toilet like Jeff Daniels, who is not a, is not a comedic actor... He plays that part amazingly. Last thing I'll say in two sentences, Sandler is, in my opinion, being looked down upon by the majority of voting because of his past films. I genuinely think that. And I don't think people are allowing people to take him seriously because of all the movies he's made that have been comedic throughout his career, in my personal opinion. I was wondering how long is he going to stretch these sentences? To those, that, that was seriously that was two sentences, but was those are the sentences? longest ass sentences I've ever heard in my life. Wait, did I really say within two sentences for real? Yeah, I, you I did. It yes. was not. I, I That's said why we sentences. were all sitting here counting you. Yeah. That's so funny. Uh, Kevin has been beating the Adam Sandler drum since uh, September, or since he saw Uncut Gems. He's been beating this one even longer. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o for yeah. uh, us. Getting nominated. Kevin, transition to uh, where you think she's in. Now, she did get a Critics' Choice uh, nomination. She did not get a Globes. Is that correct? Yeah, she, she did not get but a Globes. she did get a SAG. She got a SAG, which makes me really happy. Um, Us, is, okay. Us is my number three movie of the year, um, and it was my number one for a long time. Uh, I think I've seen Hollywood now eight times <laughs> since since I last talked to you guys. <laughs> it's been two more. Um, and that movie's my number one. But Lupita Nyong'o's performance in Us... 
is truly one of the greatest performances I've seen in years. And I just really want her to get recognition. And that SAG nomination made me so happy because I feel like now she genuinely has a chance just to get nominated. She's already won before. But I want I want the Oscars nominations to come out and I want to see her name with the title Us. I know Peel won't get in. I know the movie won't get in. I, I get that. But she deserves a nomination. And I think she deserves well, to win. And in a year... In a year where we're saying like director is stacked, actor stacked, actress is not. You know, there's some good performances in there, but it's it's a little bit open for just about anybody to come in and make a late surge. And I don't think you're that far fetched if Lupita gets in that people can start making the case of just like watch the performance, you know, because it it is an incredible performance. And also, I think, you know, when it comes to the movie itself, I mean, everyone seems to, I mean, it seems like her biggest competition right now is Renee, Zell, Renee Zellweger and Judy. But or the Charlize. thing that I've heard, or Charlotte, but or I, don't see, I don't feel like, I don't feel like there's as much love for Charlize or Scarlett. See, I'm getting, like I'm I, getting a Theron, I'm, gonna, I'm getting a Charlize Theron vibe right now as a front really? runner. I really I just am. feel like that movie doesn't have, well, I guess it did get a lot of SAG buzz, so that could yeah. be a long way. But I, my point yeah. was going to be is that I think more people like us as a movie than like Judy as a movie. Everyone likes Renee Zellweger and Judy, but not as many people like the movie itself. And I think the fact that more people like us could help Lapita a little bit. Yeah, yeah I, I can see that. But I, I really do think Charlize Theron has started, that movie's gaining traction. Margot Robbie got in for supporting for Bombshell. She's amazing in the movie. Uh, I think that right now, like you said, I, see, it's funny, Jake brings up Renee Zellweger, and I would have agreed. If, I would have agreed with him had we been discussing this at TIFF. I'm just not getting a vibe from that one anymore. But but from what no, I've read, I've I've read talking about campaigning. She has been she has been going around and she has been shaking the hands and she knows how this works. She's been shaking the yeah. hands yeah. and kissing the babies. She oh, but yeah. sometimes you peak early. You know, sometimes you peak yeah. too early. And she yeah. came out of Toronto hot, yeah. red ask, hot. Ask and, a star is born. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, yeah, it, it's Ga- funny. Gaga. It's weird though because you think about can you translate box office success and popularity into whether or not someone's going to win? And and you go back obviously last year with the wife when we all thought Glenn Close was going to win. No one saw the wife and ended up losing to Olivia Coleman for the favorite. I don't know how well the favorite did at the box office. But say that no one saw the favorite. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, right? I mean, like right now, I feel like no one's talking about Judy Garland's uh, that movie at the moment. Um, I think, but it's also a product of where we are in the year, what's being released. Bombshell's about to come out. Um, but, right. you know, then Lupita's coming back into the conversation, which makes me really happy. So it's really one of those things where at the end of the day, there's no way to even justify a prediction on this stuff because it really comes down to people voting that we don't know what their decisions are going to be. And like, we're all going to be surprised just like we were on Oscar night last year. I just hope that some of these surprises are in favor of things that we genuinely love. And I, I just really would love to see uh, Lupina Nyong'o walk away with that Oscar. I just don't think it'll happen, but it'd be, it'd be amazing. Here's what I'll tell you. She's yeah. my vote for BFCA. 100%. No is question. She really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's my vote. I mean, is there a better female what? performance this year by an actress? It's one of my favorite performances, period. Actor, yeah. actress, supporting, not yeah. supporting lead, whatever. Yeah, she's so good. My champion um, along those lines is uh, Taryn. I would love to see Taryn get in. And I know I, that that category is so ridiculous. He got a sag, and that goes a long he did. way. That goes a long way. He did. Way. I love. In that weekend, he got Critics' Choice, and he got sag. Um, and I think he got Globes, too, but again, they he had got a Globe for, category. for a musical, yeah. Yeah, so that's We cheap. disagree pretty on um, that film. You don't like Taryn in that, or you don't like the film? 
I like him in the movie. I don't. I don't love the film. I found I, I had yeah, I had so. issues with the with the with the tone of that movie in regards to. I don't think it. I think it did not know what it wanted to be in regards to a musical or uh, a non musical. And I think that, in my opinion, with Rocket Man, I think it just broke into song in the most random places that just took me out of the film. That's another time. That's because I, I feel like Bohemian Rhapsody didn't know what it wanted to be, like a good movie or total shit. Oh, I see. I thought Rhapsody. So, so it split the difference. <laughs> oh man, I think Bohemian Rhapsody is so far beyond that movie. But yeah, anyways. So. Uh, you think Bohemian Rhapsody is better than Rocket? I think we discussed this. I, it's actually not even. Close in my book. You're absolutely right. It's You're not right. even close. You are a hundred percent correct. Bohemian's like up way up top, and Rocket Man's like one of the most forgettable musicals I've seen in a long time. No offense, Kevin. You, you Kevin, you, you are you are one of the the sweetest men I've ever met in my life. But but you're but I'm gonna pull a bohemian if you if you die before me, I'm gonna pull a Bohemian Rhapsody and make a movie about how much of an asshole you were, and that's gonna be people's memory of you because that's exactly what they did with Freddie Mercury. I cannot remember a time I felt that a real blend brother of mine has been wrong. It has been this wrong. It's, it's almost like me guys, oh, me telling on. you guys how much I hate Lord of the Rings. Well, come on, Jake. Is is it worse that I'm saying Bohemian Rhapsody is better than for uh, better than uh, Rocket Man, or Sean <laughs> saying that Forrest Gump is one of the worst <laughs> movies ever made? Which ones? Are those, which one of those is worse? I think you're both just totally idiots. Might be the worst. Uh, you did say something really interesting before we started as we were prepping Go- uh, Globe's conversation. You think De Niro might be done or is in danger of being done. And that seems ver- a very swift verdict based on just a few nominations coming out. Because the Irishman well, the s- is still overperforming. It's a juggernaut. Yes. I mean, that, that, for me, him not getting the sag for best actor, it was kind of the nail in the coffin. It was kind of a bummer that he didn't get Globes. But okay, you could miss one of the major ones. He got... Critics' choice, but we also nominate eighty-four people in each category, so that I don't <laughs> think that means as much. If I'm being honest, Fair. shout out to the BFCA. Um, but I think him not being voted in by his fellow actors, the actors that make up a majority of that of the of the voting um, category, uh, I think that says a lot. And I think unfortunately, there's just so much attention being paid to Pesci and Pacino that I think De Niro is kind of being forgotten about. And Best Actor is so stacked, and unfortunately, it's also. I mean, Pesci's performance was quiet, but it's getting a lot of attention for how quiet it was because he is known for being so loud. I think uh, De Niro's performance is just maybe just a little in a, in a year where you know you've got the clip of Adam Driver screaming at Scarlett Johansson, and then you've got the very showy Joaquin uh, uh, Phoenix performance in Joker, in, in, a, in a group of very showy actor performances, Taron Egerton in all the wild costumes. I just unfortunately feel like De Niro is just a little too low key an Irishman for people. Um, and it's he's so not going to be anyone's number two. He's the soul of that picture. He's the soul of that picture. And I think and, the last act, we've all said, is some of his best work, but I just don't think it's showy enough. Uh, and it's not, it's, you need to be people's one, two, or three choice. And I don't think he is. And that's, and that's the biggest problem I have with something like the Oscars and the award season is that while De Niro might not have a clip you could toss to that shows his brilliance, um, like I feel like that is a problem because it's, the movie's three and a half hours. He carries that entire film in his eyes and his performance is brilliant. But to Jake's point about the showiness of it, that is unbelievable to me that that would even be, which is probably, and Jake's and probably right, that, that there's nothing showy about the performance into a, into a point where you can't even nominate him because there's no clip you can toss to because you can't encapsulate that performance in 15, 20 seconds. It's not possible. Um, and I just find it But with the SAG nominations, he... Jake's 
Jake's really right, though. Like, actors should recognize what he's doing, right? Like, How it's okay for not? us to almost overlook what he's doing. Yeah, I know. That's that's. I mean, what and I like, and don't get me wrong. I loved Christian Bale in Ford versus Ferrari, but I, was I happy think about that. De Niro acts circles around Christian Bale. It's interesting. I was really happy that that Bale uh, got in. No, I, I think, was. I I, I, I like. Okay, Bale so then who do we take out? But then who do we take out of best Well, actor? that's the thing. I don't hate. I don't hate anybody in that category. And that this is the point we've been making the entire show. Really good people are going to be left out on Oscar morning. Well, the simple the simple answer to that question is remove Taron and added Sandler. I mean, that, that, ah, is, that is a very oh, simple an, uh, answer right. to that I'm question. Sorry, so I, I like biopics about singers where the actor actually sings, which unfortunately oh, Romney didn't do. Oh, Damn. wow. All right. this Kevin, did you hear um, Clint Eastwood's favorite Michael Douglas and Danny DeVito movie? No. <laughs> Clint Eastwood has a very – he has a favorite – Michael Douglas and Danny DeVito movie. It's he he talks about it all the time in almost mm. every interview I've seen him do. He brings up how much yeah. he loves Richard Jewell on the Nile. <laughs> that's a, how that's long have you been holding that? that was, that's I really good. Just, I came up with it right now to break the tension. All right, that's this week really in movies. Good. I find this really funny. People have been lobbying for uh, Terrence Malick's film, A Hidden Life. And I saw a lot of people, again, on the quote-unquote film Twitter, like, when are we going to get to see the new Malik? Like, is the new Malik an awards contender? And then a bunch of these groups nominated, New York, L.A., Critics' Choice, the SAGs, nothing for Hidden Life, nothing. Nothing for Malik, nothing, just completely overlooked. And then the day after all those nominations came in, I got a package with three DVDs, all containing the Terrence Malick film, Hidden Life. And I was like, hey, guys, you're a little bit late because <laughs> the, that ship has sailed, and now you're getting the movie in people's hands. So I haven't yet seen A Hidden Life. I'm going to assume that you guys have not yet seen the Malick film? Uh, I have not, but I'm also, and, I, you know, I'm sure... Film Twitter will come at me with, uh, yeah. with pitchforks, but I'm just not a Malik guy, man. I just Malik doesn't no. really do it for me. I, I uh, really, I, I think a lot of his work is like visually beautiful, and I, I respect the craft of it. But his movies do nothing for me. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100. Uh, Black Christmas, the horror the horror movie Black 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 Christmas that opens this week. Anyone? All right, I know we all saw uh, Jumanji: The Next Level. Well, Kevin and I have seen it. Kevin, Jumanji: The Next Level. What's your take on that one? Um, quick, I, like a liked it. I, I, like I a, thought it was, I thought it was fine. Um, I think I, I think the first one was better. I think this one has some great moments. Uh, I think uh, Sean and I were texting about Kevin Hart and his. Anytime he does Danny, Don, uh, Danny Glover, it, it just kills. That that those scenes are <laughs> hilarious. Um, those are the best scenes in the film. I I found the film to be just a, a bit anticlimactic. It just didn't it didn't deliver. It, it, the first one felt special. I, I, I liked being taken into a video game yeah. world and messing with the idea of a video game where you have multiple lives, you die, you fall back down. And I think that there are moments in this movie that I enjoyed watching these actors do these performances. But at the end of the day, I didn't think any of the action was memorable. And I, I, I just found Kevin Hart's performance as Danny Glover to really be the best part of that film. Also, Karen Gillan is incredible. She has a great action scene in the movie. Um, it's not, it's, it's, it's not bad. It's actually just fine. No. Uh, and, 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 yeah. and if you went and saw it with your family, you're going to walk out and go, cool, that was fun. Um, but it, it's not anything yeah. mind bending or mind blowing, um, but it's, it's fine. All right. We're going to shift to uh, Richard Jewell, a movie that I Wait, Sean, your thoughts disliked. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I agree with everything that you said. I, I'd give it a three okay. out of five. 
Um, Same. It was funny. Same. Like I sat next to Kevin when we watched this for the junket screening, and we were just pointing out jokes that didn't land. It's just unfortunate. Like there's just a few jokes there's throughout. There's so many it. that don't like, land. When they happen, we turned to each other and we were just like, is that how that scene just ended? Like it just kind of ends on a bad yeah. joke. But you're 100% right that, that the uh, Kevin Hart, Danny Glover joke is never not funny. Like that, yeah. that thing is consistent all the way through. And uh, But you brought up such a great point when we interviewed Jay Kasdan, and I think he gave a good answer to it, but but the the honest answer yeah. is, do you make a sequel because you have a great idea, or did you make a sequel because your other movie was super successful and you had to hit a release date? And he played the line of like, oh, you know, I'm, I know the difference between the two and I can balance them. Jumanji in the Next Level was made because the first one did really, really well. Yeah, uh, and... and did we tell Jake and Gabe about uh, when Jake Kasdan showed us the director's cut of the movie? And uh, anytime those jokes didn't land, they would cut to video yeah. footage of Jake's angry face about our puns randomly in the middle of this film. It was very weird. Like, yeah. it was just this random it, shot of Jake's disappointed face every two right. seconds. Um, but, yeah, that, but the director's cut, um, I'm excited to see it. The whole, the whole bloody affair. I'm looking forward to that. I almost wish we had a visual element to this show sometimes. I know we did back in the day. Um, I want to go to Richard Jewell. Uh, this is a movie that and I, don't, I don't know what you guys think of it. You both did The Junket. We have not discussed the film in general, but I watched it on a screener, and I thought it was terrible. I thought it was really, really bad. And it's funny. Like, Clint can be hit and miss with me. It just it kept rubbing me the wrong way how, how cheap and inexpensive it looked. You know, like, some things would, would knock me out of it where Digital. he would have these— these scenes would be, yeah, probably, but even just this, like they'd have a scene set at Olympic Park and it was supposed to be a live music scene and they would cut to the crowd and it looked like Clint got about 35 extras to stand together and pretend that they were cheering on some country singer. And it looked so phony to me. Like Richard Jewell is supposed to be like running around, uh, you know, trying to prevent this bomb or, or see what's going on. And it just always looked like they shot it with the bare necessities to, to pull it off. It never looked like a film to me. And Kevin, maybe you're right. Maybe it is just the digital versus film separation that took me out of it. But I just never felt that like anyone's heart was in it. Olivia Wilde is, she's playing a gonzo journalist character who feels like she's in a completely different movie. Um, someone said this to me today about this movie. I thought they kind of nailed it. It felt like the entire movie was happening to Richard Jewell, but he had nothing necessarily to do in his own movie. And I think that that's a pretty fair assessment. It, it didn't work for me at all. Uh, I would say skip it, but you guys might disagree. Uh, it's it's middle of the road, Eastwood, for me. Um, it's about as subtle as a sledgehammer. You know, uh, Eastwood is, has never really been one for subtlety. Um, and when he has a point that he wants to get across, he's basically, like, it, it's basically, you know, he's he's... Two scenes away from the character, the character stopping what he's doing and looking in the camera, going, "Do you get what I'm saying? Like, do you get do you get the point that I'm trying to make?" Um, I think that some of the performances in the movie are actually really strong. I thought Paul Walter Hauser. Um, I get your point that Sean, that was an interesting point, but I do think his performance as Richard Jewell is 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 really strong. I think Kathy Bates is really strong. Um, I think Sam Rockwell is really strong. I'm not quite sure why Hollywood hasn't quite figured out what to do with John Hamm yet. Um, I don't understand why he keeps getting these sort of secondary characters and where 90% of them are FBI agents. Um, <laughs> Olivia Wilde's character is problematic for a whole lot of reasons. Um, yeah, there, there are things I like about it, and there are a lot of things I didn't like about it. Um, I don't, uh, I, but I, I still, you know, I, honestly, I liked The Mule better. Oh, I did too. When we're talking recent, when we're talking recent Eastwood movies. I, um, 
I I actually liked Richard Jewell on the second half more than the first half. Um, to to Sean's point, the first half does look it doesn't look cinematic, uh, really. Um, but the second half, once we are dealing with Richard Jewell as the prime suspect, that's where I really kind of locked into the film. I could not believe, and you guys. One of the things that blew my mind is a lot of that stuff really happened. Like they threw him in interrogation rooms like that, and it blew me away, like how much he was being bullied. Um, and I thought that Paul Walter Hauser carried that emotion so well. There's a great moment in the film where, up until a certain point, we think that he doesn't understand people are making fun of him. And at one point, he literally explains to Sam Rockwell's character, oh, no, I know I know what he's saying. Um, I know what John Hamm is saying when he's saying that. Um, and I thought that was a really pivotal moment in the film and the storytelling for me that this character for the first half, we don't really understand, we don't really know what he's going through. And it's that little moment that was so jarring to me that put me in a position where this guy knows what's going on and he knows what he has to do. And I think... Him and Kathy Bates and Rockwell, those performances are so damn good that I recommend it because I think the second half of the film really delivers. The first half, I agree with Sean on. It's not a great film, but I thought it was a decently good film. And I think that uh, you put aside 1517 in Paris, which was I didn't love. I didn't like at all, actually. Um, I liked it better than The Mule. It's nowhere near Mystic River. It's nowhere near um, classic Unforgiven Eastwood type movies. But I don't think what's, it's a what's bad his movie. last great movie? Last letters from Iwo Jima. Great movie, I think. Yeah, great Myst- movie. Last Myst- great movie he made. Mystic River. What, what was I think Million Dollar Baby. I like Million Dollar Baby a lot. So I think Million Dollar Baby is extremely manipulative. I find that movie to be. That's fair. J- Jake, you're with me on I'm that. With you. Yeah, I just found that film to be like. I, like, like Jake said, a point. Just, who said the point about like looking to the audience and going, "Get it"? Like, that was Jake, yeah. right? That's yep. That, that's how I felt. In Million Dollar Baby. Every five Why seconds. Why do you I hate was, Morgan Freeman, Kevin? I love Morgan Freeman. I just don't love <laughs> Million Dollar Baby. <laughs> All right, let's get to the last two movies that are opening this week. Um, Uncut Gems, we have raved about. If you've been listening to the podcast at all uh, recently, you know that we are saying go see it. Uh, so I want to spend just a minute or two on Bombshell uh, because it's heading into a packed marketplace. Uh, it recently picked up the SAG nomination. It does have, in my opinion, some really strong performances. But in uh, to me, it's one of those films. So it's about the Fox News scandal. It's about Roger Ailes. It's about the uh, case that was brought up against him by uh, Gretchen Carlson. And uh, the cast obviously includes uh, Charlize Theron, who we just mentioned is getting a lot of awards attention, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie, John Lithgow playing Ailes. Um, it, it feels – and we get one of these almost every year. It, it's a movie that rushes to tell an important story uh, that's contemporary and in its rush to get there might miss out on telling either the complete picture or really figuring out which way it should have gone. Uh, from this perspective, I, I almost thought going into it, it was Gretchen Carlson's story, and then it shifted to Megan Kelly's story, and then Margot Robbie's story got a little bit overlooked because of that, and I almost just wonder if the screenplay needed a few more passes. It's not a bad movie by any stretch, uh, and I was moved by a lot of it. Some of it's really, really powerful, uh, but I also felt like it was a movie that that probably could have picked the lane a little bit stronger, so I ended up just kind of appreciating the performances in it and not sure that I'm going to remember 
the movie itself, you know, in a year or two from now. Like someone will bring up, oh, remember the Fox News movie that they made? And I'll be like, yeah, right. What was that movie called? Who was in that movie? And I'll kind of, you know, sort of blank on it. But I don't, that's that's how it hit me. So while I can definitely understand why people are curious at checking out the performances, it almost feels like this is one you can wait for streaming potentially. Maybe see it on one of the cable channels when it uh, comes back around. All right, let's get to this week's blend game because it is a major major topic, and I think we're going to want to spend time uh, explaining our picks. So, uh, we've been going through the decades, started with the 60s, uh, worked our way through 70s, 80s, 90s, obviously, and now we are up to the 2000s. And so a lot of people played along on social media with 2000s Blend, and uh, we're going to give you guys our picks, starting with Mr. Jake Hamilton. Jake, oh, I'm going your first? favorite movie of the 2000s is? Look, this is... This is, this is um probably going to be the biggest difference between you know where we really have to differentiate favorite and and best because i get that there are there are some truly 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 great movies that came out this decade um but none more so that i love or have had as much of an impact on me um and there couldn't be a more perfect episode to to pick this particular movie um but for me it's going to be road to perdition um i think it is just for me probably the quintessential father-son movie it's my favorite Tom Hanks movie of all time. I think it's one of the most beautifully shot films in existence. Honestly, I don't. I'm not being hyperbolic. I really think Conrad Hall's um, work is some of the most beautiful work that's ever been put to film. Um, I think Thomas Newman's score is incredible, and just this um, almost uh, 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 Shakespearean, you know, tragedy, Greek tragedy, maybe this Greek tragedy of, of fathers and sons. And, uh, and, you know, how, you know, we're, we're, the struggle of, of sons wanting to, to live up to who our fathers think we are. And um, it's it, but, but then on the flip side of that, fathers not wanting their sons to become them. Um, I just think it's it, it takes uh, just this uh, it t- and it turns the city that I now live in into this like really kind of mythical world. Um, it's just a beautiful movie that has haunted me since uh, the day I saw it uh, in the summer of 2002. And uh, I, I have loved it every day since. Uh, it's one of my favorite movie posters of all time. There's a great poster of Tom Hanks, and he's half hidden in the rain. Like the the the, the brim of his hat kind of hides his face in shadow, and the rain's coming down. And he's got his on one hand, he's got his son by the by the arm, and the other hand, you just see peeking out from his trench coat, you see the tip end of a machine gun, and the rain's coming down, and it just says "Pray for Michael Sullivan." And I just think that's one of the most freaking like chill inducing posters everything about road to perdition the, the double entendre of perdition being the town that they that they're trying to get to but also meaning hell um everything about that movie just astounds me it astounds me it's it stuck with me it kills me it's mendez's best movie masterpiece i've only seen that film once dude only should, once if you get the chance really it's incredible watch it again man and i i do i would love to yeah kevin did you know that um mendez wanted to shoot that black and white and no, that Conrad, Conrad, Hall, um, Conrad Hall wanted to shoot it black and white. And, I, yeah, and, and Mendez said no. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember hearing a similar story about Frank Darabont in The Mist. I, I didn't. I mm-hmm. never heard about it in regards yeah. to um, in regards to Road to Perdition. No. Yeah. Which is funny because Mendez went to Deakins about the one shot thing look- for nineteen seventeen, and Deakins was like, "Nah, man, I don't want to do that." And then he had to like kind of talk Deakins into it. I just wanted to say I was so happy that you got time to spend with Sam, you know, multiple times, but uh, but but really to get in depth and tell him how much that movie yeah means yeah. to you. Again, I could very, now put because cool. I've got sound from um, Mendez, Tom Hanks, uh, Daniel Craig, Jude Law, and um, 
uh, Stanley Tucci about Road to Perdition. So I could, I've always, I actually thought about like putting together like a Road to Perdition package with all the different sounds that I've gotten from different actors over the years. Why haven't we na- I love changed that. the name of our show this week to Real Blendez? Like, I, I, I'm actually wondering why we haven't done that. Like this, 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 this show should be called that. In all honesty, I'm not even joking. Like that, this episode should be called Real Blendez, whatever the number we're on, and then, and then he's that our is- guest. That's perfect. It's such a better joke than what I used at the top of the show. <laughs> I just want to clip that and move it right back up to the top. Kevin, you are next. 2000s blend. Yeah, it, this is an interesting... Um, uh, I, I, t- I was texting Gabe earlier. I, I went, I'm, I'm in between two films. I'm going to give my ultimate... I'm going to give my pick, but the other film that was in contention was Children of Men. Um, because I think Children of Men was... I'm cheating by giving that, but I, I, I wanted to just mention that because... Um, in the year, in the decade of the Ooh, 2000s. I want to give a backup too. But the only reason I bring that up is because <laughs> in the decade of the 2000s, I went and saw that movie at AMC Georgetown, uh, which is ironic. Hey! I know, it's funny. Hey! Um, and it was playing, it was like a limited release film, if I remember correctly, and I had to go to Georgetown to see it. And I just will never forget that experience, and that would have been my pick. But because we're going with favorite, um, I actually think I would give Children of Men the best if I were to give, if I was choosing best of the decade. Sure. Now looking at favorite, I can't not choose Kill Bill um, because of the, uh, because of what it did to me as a, as a film fan, what it did to my life. Um, I mean, the full circle scope of how that movie has changed my life in a weird way is just the reason why we play this game, right? I mean, I always think of Sean talking about, Oh brother, where art thou? And things that like are effective based on what he did, and where he was with his wife when they saw it. Uh, Kill Bill has has an uh, an 18, 19 year track record with my life that every <laughs> and, and and it's been a big deal uh, so much so that I got a tattoo of it recently. But I when I first started my journey with Kill Bill, and I'm considering Kill Bill one film for this part part of the discussion. <laughs> I, I've been waiting man. to break in and ask you yeah. which one. <laughs> I know, I was, uh, but it, it, if I'm in, in all honesty, I'm choosing Kill Bill, the whole bloody affair. Um, yeah, and, you're allowed, and, and you'll. I won't dive into this now because you're going to hear the whole explanation of it in our Tarantino interview when I re-explain what what that movie means to me. But when I first saw it, it changed everything in regards to the. I just went back and started watching old kung fu films. Um, I ended up buying a Japanese version of the DVD just so I could watch the full color scene of House of Blue Leaves and I'll tease ahead. Hey, remember when you told uh, Quentin Tarantino that? But Kevin, can I ask you one question though? Like what yeah. is it about the movie though? Is it the uh, character of the bride? Is it the style? Is it the dialogue? What is it about Kill Bill that gets you? It's it's everything from the bride's character to the cinematography. There's something about the way, <laughs> this is going to sound random, the way Serial looks in that movie. There's a moment in when he's when uh, she's fighting uh, Vivica A. Fox in her house, and the kid comes home from school, and she's making like lunch or breakfast for her daughter. And there's just something random about way, the way the, the wagon pulls up, and just the, the the way those shots were done. The brides. The reason why that film hits me is because there's something about Uma's performance that is okay. genuinely brilliant. If you think about it. I bring up the serial and I bring up that house fight because if you think about that scene, she goes into that moment as somebody who's seeking revenge. The daughter comes home and the emotional weight of what that character Beatrix Kiddo has to deal with in that moment of, I'm here to seek revenge and kill this person, but I also don't want to do it in front of her kid. And I feel like that movie was such a, 
it, it blended these really random things where you would have a character who would actually stop to think about how she was going to commit her revenge, and she actually stayed in a lane where she was going to be respectful in that moment and not kill Vivica A. Fox in front of her daughter, but that obviously plays out differently. The, the scope of that story, the nonlinear storytelling, the use of black and white, the wedding sequence, the dialogue, Carradine's Superman speech, um, the the five-finger death punch, whatever you want to call that, that, <laughs> that, that takes out Carradine. There was just something special about these weird... Like, think about that moment with Carradine at the end, at the end of, quote-unquote, volume two, whatever you want to call it. Um, but think about that scene. She walks into that house. She tucks her daughter in and lets her fall asleep before going outside and killing David Carradine. That is, like, right. just the, the way she operated these scenes, the way Tarantino put us in these moments, the buck sequence uh, with the head in the door, uh, the moving of the feet sequence, the animation sequence back to um, like the whole scope of that movie. It just spoke to me from a passionate filmmaker. I felt like Quentin Tarantino was coming through that movie in regards to his passion for this subject, passion for the revenge element of it. I love the Star Trek quote at the beginning, the Klingon proverb, revenge is a, be- a dish best served cold. Um, and you know, just the movie just spoke to me. I'm not, I'm not saying it's my favorite Tarantino movie, but because, and I'll end with this, and you'll hear it in the Tarantino interview, why I say it lasted me 19 years, I recently went to Japan and Lauren took me to Gampachi, which is the, the um, the inspiration for the House of Blue Leaves, especially the staircase, and she wore my Okinawa shirt that came with my Kill Bill DVD that I bought back in college, and she wore it in Okinawa. Just like the the, the journey of that film, I took Japanese because of it. I almost went to Japan and taught English in a jet program because of Kill Bill. Um, it just <laughs> it just it just had a lot to do with my life, and it's not my favorite movie of all time, but. The, that journey of that movie came out at a time in my life where it's affected me in multiple ways, even into my 35-year-old day today. That's why I love that movie. Nice. All right, good. That's a, the that score. is the personal answer. Oh, more co- the day. Yeah, yeah, the score, the fighting, the House of Blue Leaves, the garden hose blood squirting. It's just, it's, it's awesome. The decades uh, episodes tend to bring out the really personal answers from <laughs> from all of us, and that's what I love about them. I think they're fantastic. I'm actually going to be really sad when this little uh, saga that we've been doing is coming to an end. We have one more, and we're going to be doing it uh, on our 100th episode with all of you, and that's that's going to be really really cool. Okay, I get to wrap it up. Um, my runner up would have been Wally because uh, oh, Wally is one of the most. Story. I also want to give my runner up at once. Go ahead. What's your runner up? What's your runner up? Almost famous. Well, my pick is almost famous. Ah! My pick is almost famous. <laughs> my pick is almost famous. Almost famous. Odds? I genuinely didn't know that. I did not know that. Yeah. No. I, it, okay. So now I can actually say I'm stunned. Neither of you picked the Dark Knight. I f- just assumed that was going to be a, a Dark Knight was in the back of my head only, and and the reasoning I would have given for Dark Knight would have been that was the first time I ever experienced a filmmaker make a feature film that opened up to 70 millimeter IMAX within a feature movie, and but it wasn't enough for me to. It wasn't enough weight on me as Kill Bill was, but Dark Knight was actually in my top five of choices. So people know um, if they pay attention to my social, I I play in a band. Um, I play drums now, but growing up, I played guitar. Uh, My whole life, I played guitar. Uh, I self-taught, took a couple lessons from a guy, um, but then he got to a point where I kind of realized he wasn't teaching me anything else anymore, and so I just kept playing on my own. And... Started a band in high school, uh, played in, in bands all through college, 
Um, so I just, I love the musician lifestyle. It's funny I write about movies because I love musicians and music and, and all that stuff even well, not even more, but that's like a release. Like music becomes like a release because I'm immersed in movie stuff all the time. When I went to go see Almost Famous, I, I, I had already been in love with Cameron Crowe. Like Cameron Crowe was one of those people who was putting together a filmography by the time we got to Almost Famous that was like, holy cow, this guy's going to be one of the greats, right? He's coming off of Jerry Maguire, singles, say anything, just seemed to be this this next version of screenwriter and director who was going to be forging a path that was going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. And here he was going to make um, a rock a, a rock uh, comedy drama kind of based on his time at Rolling Stone. And I went into Almost Famous um, in the back of my mind thinking I was going to connect with uh, B- Billy Crudup's character and Jason Lee's character. And I was going to be into the story of the band. And I couldn't wait to see how the, the Cameron was going to, Cameron Crowe was going to do this aesthetic of the 70s grungy rock band because I, I love that type of music. Um, and I was transitioning over into punk, but I still loved that scene. And it, was, it wasn't until like a first half hour where I was like, oh, shit. I, I'm William Miller. <laughs> I'm not those guys. <laughs> I'm Patrick Fugit's character, and I'm the one who's going around and documenting all of this, and I'm living vicariously through these guys. And it was the moment that hit me because at, by that point, I was already like taking notes in movies and trying to figure out how to become a, a journalist that when the, the band starts to play and he starts writing notes and Penny Lane takes his hand and just puts the pad down of like, hey, stupid, live in this because <laughs> there's a lot of great stuff happening. And I was like, oh, my God, that's me. And then from that point on, the rest of that movie was just different. It became a different movie from where I sat down to. And it was such a beautiful experience for, to watch those characters go through those transitions, to see Russell be, you know, go from the rock god to be torn down to be just a regular person. So when he finally gets his interview at the end, it was great closure for each of those characters. Um, I love Jason Lee as a performer. I just think Jason Lee is tremendous. I think he is one of the best screen presences ever, whether he's doing something stupid like My Name is Earl uh, or he's in the Kevin Smith movies. He's brilliant as a lead singer uh, of Stillwater. And it's just it, I think he nails. I think Cameron Crowe nails. What's the line? He's like, uh, I the find the vibe. one person that's not getting off, and I make them get off. <laughs> yes, exactly. And of course, I, mean, I didn't even mention it, but the Philip Seymour Hoffman scene, oh, probably yeah. the greatest thing Cameron Crowe has ever written or will ever write, uh, that his character. And so, Lester Bangs, obviously. Yeah. And um, it, it hurts me that, that Cameron Crowe, to me, has fallen off as hard as he did after such a really strong beginning. Um, it's it like starts Coppola. with me... What like what, what do yeah. you think? It is? is it like a writer's block or what? I mean, what do you think it is? I mean, I actually I, kind I, of like Elizabeth Town to be honest with you. Um, I liked it. Aloha. There is no there is no Aloha is terrible. Um, and and we bought a zoo doesn't even feel like his movie. He didn't even write. But it, he did. did he? he did do Vanilla Sky, and you could just do a mic. Oh, I love that. Vanilla Sky. Vanilla all, Sky's really all, good. All oh, Cameron Crowe had to do was make Vanilla Sky and go, boop, drop the mic. That's all you need, man. That movie's Fair masterpiece. Enough. I think those early movies were very personal to him. And I think, you know, when you write personal, you just eventually are going to run out of things to to pull out of your own well, right? Like, I guess. I don't know. I I don't know, but I'm thrilled that Almost Famous exists. And when oh, I looked yeah. over the list of, of uh, 2000 movies and saw it, the minute I saw it, I was like, I don't know, that's got to be. I often tell people that I think if, if Almost Famous and Up in the Air had a baby, that would be oh, my God. life. Like, that, that's my existence. <laughs> It's yeah, traveling yeah, yeah. the world, interviewing your heroes, but like yep. flying way too much and that having an impact on your personal life. 
Right. And aren't both of the messages for each of those movies, uh, don't meet your heroes and don't spend so much time on the road? <laughs> yep. So I listened really well. <laughs> Didn't you just get the million mile thing? Yep. Did Sam Elliott come Sam out? Sam Elliott came and sat down right next to me. <laughs> was hey, all Sean. It. Sean. Yes. This is, this is actually not a joke. I actually have a genuine question for you. Um, You were talking about the movie yes. and the music and the film. And I have a really guilty pleasure with a film that I love. And I was curious based on your thoughts on Almost Famous while nowhere near as good as Almost Famous, what your thoughts were on Mark Wahlberg's and Rockstar. I just... Oh, I love it. I love that movie. It's so under... Dude, stand up and shout. I love the ending of that movie. Stand up! Remember that? That movie is actually awesome. And he doesn't do his own singing, by the way, in that one, clearly. The first time he goes into the booth to audition for them is a great Great scene. Remember yes. when he goes on stage and that one? Yeah. I, I, if you haven't seen Rockstar, yeah. just want to put that out there as an underrated movie. I love that film. Sorry. That's I just terrific. All right. Thoughts were on it. Yeah. Audience picks from the 2000s blend. Griffin Schiller weighed in and said Casino Royale, arguably the best. Ah, is it better than Skyfall? That's a good question. Not, I'm not it's sure. It's not better than Skyfall. Kelly Ray chose Shaun of the Dead, the fantastic Edgar Wright comedy. J.J. McKay chose uh, chose. Jeez, it's been late. The words are uh, hard. Chooses 500 Days of Summer, a movie that you guys uh, lavished praise on recently. And Asim chose A Punch Drunk Love, more love for Adam Sandler and his work with Paul Thomas Anderson. Again, thank you all for participating. Oh, dear Lord in heaven. I just saw what the next blend game is going to be. What? All right, boys. For next week, well, it won't be next week, though. It'll be the week following. For the next time that we do the blend game, uh, in honor of Tom Hooper's cats, <laughs> we are playing hashtag Judy Dench blend. So bring your favorite Judy Dench film to the blend game. <laughs> Jake's face. <laughs> I cannot say what Jake just said <laughs> quietly underneath his breath, but we will be ready to honor Dame Judy Dench uh, with hashtag Judy Dench blend uh, on on the next show. And, and are we? Uh, are the we? Pick, the pick might be cats. We, do, we don't know. We haven't seen it yet. We're looking forward to seeing it. Uh, reviews. Let's get to reviews from this week. Nelly 66 wrote us a review uh, that I think was on the Apple iTunes that said, Great find. Keeps me invested every week. I stumbled across this podcast when Avengers Endgame premiered. I first listened to their spoiler-free episode, and then I saw the movie and continued to refresh the Real Blend page multiple times per day until the spoiler-filled episode was released, and I have been hooked ever since. I, that That's going to go down as the Russo Brothers one is going to go down as one of my greatest conversations ever. I have always been— Hope you two had a wonderful time doing that. (laughs) I've always been a huge fan of movies. I can spend an entire day watching movies and never get tired or bored, and I especially like looking behind the scenes to see how they are made. This podcast is a perfect blend of the two. Three hosts and a quote-unquote producer (laughs) who genuinely (laughs) love movies and love discussing them and also go behind the scenes with the high-profile actors and directors who create these films to ask the non-traditional questions that make a fan like me want to hear about. I'm so happy to have found the Real Blend podcast. It truly makes my daily commutes easier, especially since they are almost uh, at 100 episodes to, to go back to and would recommend to... Oh, especially since there are almost 100 episodes to go back to and would recommend to anyone who enjoys watching movies, which is pretty much everybody. Also, don't know if you guys didn't realize, but you will be doing 2000s Blend soon. Hey, we did it this episode. And then in January 2020, you can officially do 2010s Blend. Hey, we're going to do that during the live episode. Uh, Love you guys. Keep the content 
I love the content. Keep it coming. Dunkirk with all exclamation points. Oh, my God. You guys will now have heard uh, in this Sam Mendes interview, Sam Mendes, uh, that he says Dunkirk in two different ways. Jake, did you hear it? Whenever he said he, that, I kind of wanted to look at you and be like, he said Dunkirk. <laughs> he said Dunkirk. And he said it, he, Kevin, he said it this way, Dunkirk. Which I, <laughs> was just the best. It had that amazing Which is how we need to start it. saying it from now on. Yeah. Now I'm able to cast people in Dunkirk. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yes, do that again and again. Uh, I will plug the DC uh, meetup again, Saturday, January 4th. Uh, the details, again, go to bit dot ly forward slash real blend dc uh it's filling up now you guys know it's going to be a live show we're recording the 100th episode then we're going to be doing a meet and greet uh at a neighborhood uh location that are part of the details on the page you can also go to social media and follow the boys at jake's takes at kevin mccarthy tv at sean underscore o'connell and the page for the show at real blend we also have a facebook community <laughs> page that you guys can go and join and uh have film conversations with all of your favorite members of the blenders family which is only going to grow when we we get to episode 100. So next week's episode will be the Quentin Tarantino interview in full. We simply cannot sit on it anymore. Uh, we we want to get it out to you guys as quickly as possible. So um, we're going to record that. We're going to post it and you guys will be able to um, to listen to the entirety, the, the whole bloody affair uh, next week. Yes, Kevin. Sean, I was just curious um, during your Sam Mendes discussion <laughs> Um, yes. Did he happen to bring up his favorite movie? I'm <laughs> um, sorry, his favorite actor from okay. a c- actor. Oh, I'm, I'm like really botching this. What the this. fuck are you <laughs> saying? Dude? This one actually, this one has a lot of layers. Uh, let, let me say it now since right. I messed it up. But yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <Yeah. laughs> Sam Mendez's favorite <laughs> actor who okay. is the father of of an actor who was in Ant-Man. Oh, all right. I got it. It's Michael Douglas. No, Kirk. it's Kirk Douglas. Kirk, it's, Kirk it's Douglas. It's Dunkirk Douglas. Yes! There we go. Right. Sorry. That one. That Jeez, one looks that, like. Okay, I'm really sorry. The payoff was not worth yeah, the setup uh, of that it. one. Dunkirk Douglas. So I gotta say you. that you, you you hit a high note with me with Blendez, but now you you hit a low yeah. note with uh with. That. But sometimes yeah. it's just better just to find the way there, right? Like that, that's sometimes it's not me. though. <laughs> All right, we will be back next week with the full Quentin Tarantino, and until then, Dunkirk Douglas, Dunkirk, Dunkirk, Dunkirk Douglas. Dunkirk Douglas. <laughs>